presidents up for re-election usually ask if the country is better off than it was four years ago. I'll tell you one thing, four years ago you'd be tailgating here at the link instead of watching a speech from your cars. Yep. You tell them, Obama. We have to have rallies at drive-ins now. It's all going great. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio. Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Swell but anxious, <laughs> as has been the case pretty much every day for the past, oh, I don't know, four or five years or so. So that was uh, Barack Obama just moments ago in Philadelphia having to hold a rally at a drive-in. Yes. A drive-in rally. A drive-in car rally. Tailgating with Obama. <sighs> Unbelievable. That is where we are. Here is also where... Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Sorry, forgot to say hello. <laughs> um Lawyers at the huge Republican law firm of Jones Day, according to Reuters, a firm which has earned millions as outside counsel to U.S. President Donald Trump's reelection campaign, have donated nearly $90,000 to the campaign of Joe Biden. Yeah. Wow. Contributions to uh, Trump's campaign by Jones Day lawyers totaled, get ready, just fifty dollars. Whoa, fifty dollars! Seriously, according Compared to, to uh, records. Yep. For op- oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, at a firm which has made millions representing Donald Trump. A Reuters analysis of FEC records shows a huge gulf between individual lawyer donations from all firms. Uh, to the two candidates with nearly twenty nine million dollars going to d- directly to Biden's campaign and just under one point seven five million going to Donald Trump's campaign from the beginning of January up through the end of August this year. Other than at Jones Day, lawyers at several other law firms also representing Donald Trump or his campaign also heavily favored Joe Biden. 
The figures reflect individual giving, not law firm contributions, but actually individuals who work at those law firms. Reuters analyzed data on more than 120,000 contributions reported by the candidates' uh, campaign committees to the FEC uh, in late September which includes donations made through the end of August. Jones Day has earned over $4.5 million since 2019 as outside counsel to the Trump campaign, according to FEC records. And yet their attorneys don't seem to care much for their own client. Lawyers at three other firms that have also represented Trump or his campaign, including Porter Wright Morrison Arthur, Kasowitz Benson Torres, which is the home of Trump's former longtime personal attorney, Mark Kasowitz, and Morgan Lewis and Bacchius have all also donated overwhelmingly to Joe Biden. Wow, that's telling. Sad. Sad. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, neither that nor the overwhelmingly encouraging poll numbers for Biden and the odds of Democrats taking back the Senate this year seem to be doing much to ease my anxiety about pretty much everything today. And while I would not wish uh, anxiety on anyone, I hope that you have not become too comfortable of late seeing those uh, poll numbers for Biden and, and for the Democrats. These guys, these Republicans will do anything at this point to win. And I mean anything. Uh, after 10 years of gaming the makeup of Congress itself through gerrymandering, they have become so unpopular that they almost literally had no choice, frankly, but to gut the Voting Rights Act, as they did in 2013, and, uh, and as they hope to do even further at their stolen U.S. Supreme Court this year, because, as explained in a critical new cover story out today from The New Republic, if the demographic change driving American politics at the national level after the election of Obama in 2008 was an electorate that was becoming younger, more urban and multiracial, Republicans decided to abolish it and create an electorate of their own. The Republicans drew themselves a fantasy nation where their base gained power even as it shrunk. A land where the rights America became whiter and more conservative, even as the exact opposite dynamic had taken hold in the rest of the country. The story goes on to quote North Carolina's former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis and a whole bunch of other Republicans who are now speaking on record for the first time about this, saying... Inglis says it really becomes an apartheid system. They created a system where a minority has full control of the power. But as former RNC chair Michael Steele also quoted in the story, Steele was chair of the party from 2009 to 2011. He oversaw Karl Rove's red map strategy to game congressional and state legislative maps for the ensuing decade after the 2010 census by gerrymandering those maps. As Steele concedes in this new New Republic article, a quote, it's a short term strategy. The demographics overwhelm the strategy, but they don't work against you if you make it harder for certain people to vote or to register to vote. That, of course, is the only game the GOP seems to have left to make it harder for people to vote. 
And a number of those law firms uh, I mentioned were retained to do exactly that, to file cases on behalf of the Trump campaign and the RNC to make it harder for certain people to vote. We will be joined momentarily by the author of that new piece at The New Republic, which goes inside the Republican plot for permanent minority rule, a scheme that, yes, is still working, even if Donald Trump is removed from office and Democrats can claw back a majority in the U.S. Senate with uh, your last chance to vote, by the way, uh, now just under two weeks away on November 3rd. Yeah, the last firewall deadline, November 3rd. Of course, it matters at this point uh, every single day because Mitch McConnell is still working hard to scuttle a COVID relief deal in order to ram through Amy Coney Barrett onto the GOP's already stolen Supreme Court. So there is... Uh, only time, apparently, to do one or the other before the election, either pass a covid relief deal or jam Barrett through onto the court. They can either help desperate Americans with much needed and much overdue relief in the middle of a pandemic or push through another extremist onto an already stolen court. Which one do you think the Republicans and Mitch McConnell in the Senate are choosing? Uh, I'm happy to see Democrats are fighting back a little bit on that front. In truth, they don't have many ways to do so. Democrats are now reportedly strongly considering boycotting a Senate Judiciary Committee vote on Thursday to approve the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court, according to The New York Times, who reports the move as largely a symbolic one designed to protest the Republican rush to confirm Donald Trump's nominee before Election Day. After reluctantly conceding that uh, they do not have the votes to actually block or even substantially delay Judge Barrett's confirmation, this is sort of all they're left with. It is, is a symbolic boycott. On the other hand, uh, if they follow through with that idea of skipping the committee vote on Thursday, Republicans would be forced to either postpone the vote or to break the panel's rules requiring the presence of Democrats to conduct official business. Which one do you think they will choose, Desi Doyen? Gosh, Lindsey Graham is such a stickler for the rules, I'm sure he'll vote yes. to abolish them immediately. Right. Of course, uh, they are uh, not uh, sticklers for the rules when they are in charge of the minor of the majority. Only when Democrats are in charge, <laughs> then yep. we must stick to the rules. It would be outrageous for you to change the rules in the middle of a congressional session. You know, like doing away with the filibuster for Supreme Court justices just because we can't ram through Neil Gorsuch. Which, of course, is what they did. Nonetheless, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from uh, Connecticut who sits on the judiciary panel, said the overwhelming feeling right now is no more business as usual. That's good to hear. He says our tools and time are limited, but we are determined to use every one of them, even if they seem somewhat unorthodox. Well, you know, it's about damn time, Democrats, yeah. now that it's largely too late for those somewhat unorthodox uh, efforts to actually have any real effect. Nonetheless, if you're going to go down, go down fighting, and uh, I'm sure you will be rewarded for that by the electorate. The election is now, 
It is not November 3rd. It is right now. So have you voted yet? If not, have you made your plan for how you are going to do so? Because Republicans right now are working around the clock right now paying huge law firms huge amounts of money to prevent you from being able to vote, to make it as hard as possible for you. And thanks to their packing of the federal court system over the uh, past many years, they're getting a lot of help now from those courts. A federal appeals court, for example, ruled this week that Texas election officials can continue to reject mail-in ballots because of perceived signature discrepancies without giving voters a chance to correct those discrepancies. Pretty cool, huh? The ruling reversed a lower federal court judge uh, who ruled last month that it was unconstitutional to reject a mail-in ballot simply because of a possible signature mismatch if the voter was not first informed of the problem and offered an opportunity to address it, which seems simple enough. A bunch of non-handwriting experts uh, hired by the, uh, you know, the, the uh, county clerk uh, decide that a signature on a mail-in ballot does not match the signature that they have on file for that particular voter. And instead of tossing out the ballot, instead of rejecting the ballot based on only that, well, they contact the voter and they let them know, hey, there's a problem. We have a question about your ballot. Do you mind coming in and approving this ballot to make sure that it was actually theirs? And make sure that, yeah, make sure that it's you. You're the person who voted it because otherwise it'd be a perfectly legal ballot. Seems simple enough. Uh, because, you know, people's signatures change over time, especially as folks get older. Uh, why should they lose their right to vote because of it? Well, apparently because it is Texas. A lot of other states are not doing this. A lot of other states are giving the opportunity for voters to come in and cure uh, a ballot that has a problem on it. But no, not in Texas, because Republicans are desperate at this point to win any way that they can, even in Texas, even if it means tossing out perfectly legitimate votes, which could easily be verified with a simple phone call. But the appeals court judges from the very right wing U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit wrote that the lower court's ruling, quote, takes it upon itself to rewrite the state's procedures. They said Texas's strong interest in safeguarding the integrity of its elections from voter fraud far outweighs any burden the state's voting procedures place on the right to vote. In other words, stopping voter fraud, even though there is almost none of it, Stopping voter fraud is more important than making sure that people can actually vote. That is coming from a federal appeals court. The decision was the latest in a flurry of similar decisions handed down by appellate courts and the U.S. Supreme Court in recent weeks related to voting in the November election, often overturning the lower court rulings on this. Uh, many of these decisions have made casting a ballot more difficult in the middle of a pandemic. Texas, of course, has been uh, long a reliably Republican state, but the race for president right now is getting very close this year. Trump leads uh, Joe Biden by just one point now in 538's polling average. The most recent poll there from Quinnipiac 
calls the race a tie. And the Republican Senator John Cornyn's re-election race is also very close against the Democratic challenger M.J. Hagar. But of course, making it more difficult to cast a ballot in Texas in the middle of a pandemic, that is the whole point of what Texas and other GOP-controlled states are doing right now. And the only question is whether you, the American voter, will be prepared to overcome these obstacles, which are not there, especially in states like Texas, which used to be covered by strict requirements of the Voting Rights Act. These uh, obstacles are not there by accident, and they're not there to stop so-called voter fraud. They are there to disenfranchise their own voters in the state in the wake of the terrible Supreme Court ruling from 2013 that, yes, has worked along with the GOP's gerrymandering efforts to retain a permanent minority rule. The permanent minority rule that Karl Rove and the Republicans set out to achieve way back in 2010, for which democracy and voters like you and me continue to pay a very dear price. If all of this gives you anxiety, don't worry. We will end today with a song <laughs> that may help. We'll see. But before we get there, we're joined next by David Daly with news on how at least some Republicans are finally beginning to regret a strategy for permanent minority rule, one that may be eating them alive at this point. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And the reason that I chose that song for our bumper music there may only become uh, clear after you read David Daly's critical new cover story in this month's New Republic magazine, headlined Inside the Republican Plot for Permanent Minority Rule, how the GOP keeps cheating its way into power and may get away with it again in 2020. Uh, as I say, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman here. Daly's New Republic story sort of picks up where his landmark book on the GOP's wildly successful so-called Red Map Redistricting Plan in 2010 kicks off. That book... Uh, has a title that we cannot say on FCC air, so we call it Rat Flipped. 
the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. As mentioned, um, that secret plan of the Republicans actually worked big time as the effort by Karl Rove and the Republicans to take over state legislative majorities before the 2010 census uh, and the redistricting of state legislative and congressional maps around the country that followed resulted in Republican gerrymanders that locked in power at both the state and congressional level in dozens of states for the past decade. With that takeover, in states where Democrats often receive uh, substantially more votes than Republicans, but only a minority of seats to show for it. For example, one of the most famous examples is North Carolina, one of the most evenly divided states in the nation, but where Republicans have controlled 10 of the 13 congressional seats from the state for the past 10 years, as well as control of the state legislature. Well, with that takeover by Republicans, the GOP itself was essentially able to stop competing altogether with Democrats in elections because the majority of their own districts were so heavily weighted towards GOP voters that it would be impossible for any Democrats to uh, unseat the Republicans, by and large, in those districts. They only had to worry about being primaried from the right. So the caucus itself again, at both the state and federal levels, simply moved farther and farther and farther to the right without regard for how Democratic-leaning voters might actually react to their policies. Democracy lost. But as Daly details in his new cover story for New Republic, that was hardly the end of the GOP plot for permanent minority rule. In 2013, right-wing operatives were able to push a case to the U.S. Supreme Court called Shelby County, Alabama versus Eric Holder that would ultimately gut the key Section 5 preclearance provision of the Landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. That provision required certain states and jurisdictions around the country, largely in the South, with a long history of racial suppression at the polling place to receive preclearance from a federal court or from the U.S. Department of Justice before they were allowed to implement new rules that might dispro disproportionately affect minority voters. That section was key to the success of the Voting Rights Act. But it was not always a target of the Republican Party. In fact, as Daly details, one of the unlikely heroes in this story was Wisconsin's Republican Congressman James Sensenbrenner, who, as head of the House Judiciary Committee back in 2006, had actually partnered with the committee's then-ranking Democratic minority leader John Conyers to hold 12 hearings on the Voting Rights Act and on its renewal, with some 46 witnesses who, as Daily reports, described ongoing discriminatory efforts to deny minority voters full participation in the political process. The result of those hearings was some 12,000 pages documenting ongoing racial discrimination at the ballot box, much of which had ultimately been prevented before it could be put into action by the preclearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act. Ultimately, back in 2006, Sensenbrenner, a dyed-in-the-wool Republican himself, helped to engineer a bipartisan 
25-year reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act and of its preclearance provision. It was passed by a lopsided 390 to 33 vote in the U.S. House and a 98 to nothing vote in the U.S. Senate, with both chambers and the White House controlled by Republicans at the time. Something that is simply unthinkable now. But that was before the red map gerrymandering coup in 2010 that reshaped the GOP itself and ultimately resulted in the Supreme Court's gutting of that preclearance provision in the Shelby County case in 2013, when Chief Justice John Roberts, apparently ignoring all of Sensenbrenner's 12,000 pages of carefully documented recent racial discrimination at the polls, John Roberts declared that Section 5 was, quote, based on 40-year-old facts having no logical relation to the present day. He was referring to, I guess, when racial discrimination was no longer a factor in elections, at least the way that he believed it was back in 1965, but no longer was in 2006. After all, America had elected a black president by then. So what discrimination? Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the time in her famous dissent described Robert's reasoning as akin to casting away an umbrella during a rainstorm because you had remained comfortable and dry underneath it. And with that crippling ruling for voting rights, as Daily notes, there came a deluge of new purposefully discriminatory voting laws from states previously covered by the Section 5 Voting Rights Act provisions. By 2016, he writes, Brennan Center researchers found 14 states enacted restrictions for the first time during a presidential election, including former preclearance states such as Alabama, Arizona, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas and Virginia, as well as two red map gerrymandered states, Ohio and Wisconsin. By 2017, Georgia, Iowa, Indiana and New Hampshire had created burdens as well. Between 2014 and 2018, more than 32 million Americans were purged from voting rolls nationwide, a massive rollback disproportionately affecting voters of color and overwhelmingly in the states that were no longer subject to preclearance. For example, on the same day that the Shelby County ruling was announced by the Supreme Court, Texas, which was once covered by Section 5, announced that it would implement its restrictive voter photo ID restriction that had been twice blocked by preclearance before. When North Carolina greenlighted its monster voter suppression package in the wake of Shelby Daily Reports, early voting days were whacked in half. One of the days cut was Sunday, the most popular day for turnouts at black churches and souls to the polls rallies. The state's GOP lawmakers also ended same day registration. They ended out of precinct voting and ended pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds. A federal court ultimately ruled that the state's bill in the by now wildly gerrymandered state had in fact targeted black voters with, quote, almost surgical precision. Over the past several weeks on this program, we have reported on dozens of voting rights cases and restrictive provisions enacted by Republicans this year that have been allowed by courts 
that never would have uh, would have passed muster with those laws under the old pre-clearance regime. And yet here we are in the middle of the most critical election in our nation's history and the Republican efforts from their successful 2010 gerrymandering coup have made restoration of the Voting Rights Act, despite the best efforts of folks like, yes, Jim Sensenbrenner, have made the restoration of that act a non-starter for a Republican Party who has lurched so far to the right in the bargain that their only option for winning elections at this point, as Daily reports, is to continue restricting voting even further. Remember, this is a Republican Party that not long ago, in 2006, had reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in full for 25 years. As I just noted in the previous segment, a federal court in Texas has blocked a suit that would have required election officials to give voters a chance to correct any perceived mismatches perceived by election officials with signatures on their mail-in ballots. Such problems disproportionately tend to affect minorities, but with Section 5 gutted, it is only later, after an election, after the voters have been suppressed, by and large, after the damage has been done, that cases can be brought to detail the disenfranchisement to try and avoid it for the next election under the still-standing portions of the Voting Rights Act, which, by the way is also now being targeted by Republicans at the Supreme Court. Donald Trump did not cause this problem, and it will likely continue long after he is gone. He was, however, the beneficiary of it, and the question now is, can Americans overcome the radical impediments that have been placed in their way this year, in this year's election, and that continue to be placed in their way with each new post-Shelby ruling by the courts and by what is almost certain to be an even more right-leaning Supreme Court within days, all of which was made possible by the GOP's insidious plot for permanent minority rule enacted just over a decade ago. Joining us now to discuss how all of this affects the election that we are smack dab in the middle of right now is David Daly. Now, in addition to the writer of this uh, critical cover story at The New Republic, is also a senior fellow at fairvote.org and author of the new book whose title I can say on air, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Oh, Mr. Daly, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me, Brad. As I mentioned when we chatted earlier today, David, uh, while reading your story last night, it, it felt to me like I was sort of reading uh, about 15 years of the Brad blog, sort of condensed yeah. into 8,000 words. It's a long story, uh, but it's less than 15 years of the Brad blog, since so many of the stories that you brilliantly tie together were stories that we uh, reported sort of one at a time at bradblog.com. And, and, and by the way, that I also wrote for... Uh, wrote about for Salon many years back when you were my editor-in-chief over there, by way of full disclosure. So it felt to me, um, over the years, like hundreds of individual stories uh, toward the same end. But in truth, after reading your piece, it's really all just one single huge story, isn't it? I think that's right. I think it's just connecting the dots 
Mm-hmm. We see all of these court cases. We see the redistricting that happened. We see the efforts in individual states to make it more difficult for specific people to vote. And then you see a party that has just kept lurching further and further rightward. Uh, and it's all of a piece. Mm-hmm. You know, this was not caused by Donald Trump. It did not start with him. Um, the the fight over the vote has, has been, you know, deeply entwined in this nation ever since the, the founding of this nation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, these battles did not start in 2016. They will not end on Election Day 2020. And there is a, a real deeply embedded minority rule that has been built into our system, built atop a system that sort of already advantaged Republicans geographically in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Senate and in the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Now you add in all of these voting laws, and then you add in uh, conservative control of the courts, and you begin to get close to a, you know, a serious crisis of legitimacy. Yeah, and I think that is where we are. And uh, as you note in in the story, it's sort of becoming a monster that kind of eats itself. We'll get to that in a second. But I was also struck uh, in reading it, actually after reading it uh, last night while watching uh, something on the news, I was struck uh, by... How much that is going on right now, today, right now in Congress, for example, the uh, seemingly intractable fight over COVID relief funding for the American people in the middle of a pandemic that has infected more than eight million Americans, killed more than a quarter of a million of them. How much of that fight itself is also rooted in red map and the inability now for even Republicans to do anything? Anything about it, uh, even though, you know, action on something like this would have been a no-brainer, David, about 15 years ago. Just look at the state of Wisconsin, Brad. I mean, you have had a Republican legislature there that has been entrenched and insulated. Uh, They hold 63 of 99 seats in the state assembly, even though they won 203,000 fewer votes Mm -hmm. in the 2018 election. And they have fought the governor every step of the way on masks, on emergency closures, on voting in the middle of the pandemic, if you remember back in April mm-hmm. when they sued to require uh, the, the state do in-person voting uh, back in early April. Mm-hmm. They gaveled in and out of a special uh, session that the Democratic governor demanded in 30 seconds and refused to even consider the idea of doing this. And they did that, of course, from the convenience of their own homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't actually show up in person to do any of that. And now you see cases spiking. So absolutely, there is a huge connection between our the failures of our political system to not only keep us safe in the middle of a pandemic, but to enact meaningful policies that millions of Americans want. It's, it's because the Republicans clearly, by and large, are no longer frightened by their own voters. They don't have to work with Democrats. They only have to worry about somebody challenging them from the far right. Uh, David, I was struck by the number of Republicans that you spoke to for this story who speak on the record about 
their regrets only now, uh, but they speak about their regrets of this strategy, like former uh, RNC chair Michael Steele, former hard right GOP operative Bill Crystal, former North Carolina Congressman Bob Inglis, and and actually um, a very real hero when it when it came to renewing the now gutted Voting Rights Act, Wisconsin Congressman James Sensenbrenner. Now, while Inglis has been on this show, uh, Sensenbrenner has politely declined. But why do you suppose that those Republicans are now so willing to speak on the record uh, to you, uh, David, a uh, lefty uh, pinko like yourself? <laughs> uh, you know, I think Sensenbrenner is retiring, and I think he is horrified by what has happened to his party on voting rights. Uh, Sensenbrenner, in 2006, he looks over his shoulder at the Judiciary Committee, and he sees who's about to succeed him. It's uh, a conservative congressman from Texas, mm-hmm. and he says, this is not going to be good. Um, and so he makes a deal with the Congressional Black Caucus. He says, let's do this now. He's like, even though you guys might take control of Congress in November 2006, in the middle of the Iraq War, as indeed Democrats did, he's like, y- you still will have to deal with this guy from Texas as ranking minority member. Mm-hmm. Let's get it out of the way. And then the other reason why these hearings are so important is because he looked at the Supreme Court and he saw that John Roberts, the very man who, who he had done battle with in the 1980s over the Voting Rights Act, when Roberts was at the Department of Justice, was now the chief. Uh, so he wanted to compile this painstaking 12,000-page record, which he calls the most complete record that Congress has ever generated on any topic of legislation ever. Mm-hmm. He wanted it to be before the court so that it was clear to them that Congress had thought about this and and taken this step deliberately, uh, and that he had hoped that might give the Chief Justice pause before gutting preclearance. Um, but, you know, it was certainly not it was not to be, and it's maddening because, you know, among the things that the uh, 15th Amendment to the Constitution, uh, you know, which gives uh, the right to vote to uh, previously uh, indentured uh, slaves and so forth, uh, one of the things, it's a two-sentence uh, amendment, I talked about it a week or so ago, one of the, the, the second uh, sentence of the amendment says this amendment shall be uh, enacted by laws passed by Congress, and then you had Scalia Justice Scalia back then come in and say, well, sure, this was enacted by Congress 98 to 0 in the Senate, and that should be the reason that we overturn it. And that's sort of a sidebar here because I'm I'm kind of irritated about Amy Coney Barrett coming in and saying, uh, tying herself to Scalia uh, by saying, well, sometimes, you know, it's it's up to the, the, the legislature to pass laws. We have to just uh, call the balls and strikes even on bad laws. Well, she and Scalia are not, you know, constitutional conservatives, originalists who read the text of the law and of the Constitution and just go by that. Otherwise, there's no way Scalia could have voted against the Voting Rights Act passed by Congress by 98 to zero. So that makes me crazy. But, David, uh, why did uh, Sensenbrenner want so much in uh, 2006 to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act for 25 years? That is something that would be unthinkable for a Republican now. What was the difference then in his thinking? Uh, You know, Sensenbrenner 
was a politician in Milwaukee in the 1970s, and he remembered campaigning um, and uh, and black citizens coming up to him and, and, and telling him that they're having a hard time voting. And this uh, stayed with him. It stayed with him in the author reauthorization in 82, in 91, and then again in 2006. And I think he I think he saw the other elements in his party because he'd been in the party all those years, right? So mm-hmm. he understood he understood that you had a generation of conservative justices who were looking to undo this, and he understood that there was a new generation of conservative politicians from all of these states that 40 years after the Voting Rights Act were beginning to uh, to bristle under its constraints and didn't mm-hmm. necessarily think that they should be held back by it any longer because 2005 was not 1965. Um, so I think he saw that and wanted to try to do something about it in advance. And indeed, after the Supreme Court's deeply angering a ruling in 2013, Republicans are still in charge of Congress. And Sensenbrenner, again, he teams up with John Conyers and mm-hmm. John Lewis, and he says, let's get some sort of bipartisan legislation passed here that puts preclearance back into statute, mm-hmm. and let's get Congress to pass it. And he couldn't get it out of the Republican caucus. He tells me that there were Republican congressmen who stood up in caucus meetings and said, we will primary anybody who backs this. Yeah. And in 2014, after Eric Cantor goes down in a primary challenge, mm-hmm. uh, who was the, the majority leader at the time, and no Republicans were willing to stand up for this any longer. The, and I give Sensenbrenner a lot of credit for talking to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Cantor would not talk to me. John <laughs> Boehner would not talk to me. Paul Ryan would not talk to me. There were an awful lot of Republicans who should take some responsibility for what happened in this era who were unwilling to go on the record. Yeah, it's amazing that you see you know, a law passed uh, with such huge uh, bipartisan majorities in 2006, and then just 10 years later, after Red Map is in place, but not even 10 years later, I guess that would be seven years later, after Red Map is, is then in place, they can't pass any law to try to, to fix it. Uh, that is how much the party had changed, thanks to Red Map, as I see it. Yeah. And now, while I'm happy to uh, see Bill Crystal now, seemingly having seen the light, admitting to you, uh, about what the GOP did for the past decade. He says, quote, first we're going to gerrymander, then we're going to suppress the votes in inner cities, then we're going to discredit mail-in uh, voting. Crystal said, it's all of a piece in terms of the unwillingness to value a fair, open, and legitimate intellectual process. Well, I'm glad that he is now an anti-Trumper with the Lincoln Project. They're doing a great job to fight back, but it is still kind of hard to forgive guys like him. He was there for all of this. He helped make all of this happen. Why is he talking to you, and do you have the same uh, problem with him coming out and admitting how terrible all of those things that he did actually were? You know, I've got a bigger problem with... um Mr. Crystal over the Iraq war that I probably mm-hmm. do. <laughs> you yep. know, I, mean, I think that's where I would uh, like to have a conversation. Um, but, I mean, Michael Steele talks to me in this piece mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and Michael Steele was the chairman of the party during yep. Red Map. Yep. I mean, I have, you know, done a lot of reporting on Red Map, and I came into possession of uh, the secret files of Thomas Hoffler, the, the master Republican map maker. Mm-hmm. And 
what I found in those files were, were you know, dozens of Republican Party memos from 2010, 2011 that talk very clearly about how redistricting was going to be the uh, firewall that was going to give Republicans advantages even when they won fewer votes in all of these states. So Michael Steele knew what was going on in 2010 and 2011. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that people are speaking up. Uh, I think that more of them ought to speak up. Uh, what they created was a Frankenstein's monster that has devoured our politics, mm-hmm. and there ought to be some, there ought to be consequences for it, you know? <laughs> and too often, there are no consequences, right? People mm-hmm. just move into, you know, a new role in the punditry and, uh, you know, pull up a chair on CNN. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that we need to have a national reckoning over how we got here and how we're going to fix it. And I'm delighted that Mr. Crystal and Mr. Steele want to be part of that conversation. Well, I am too. I mean, but it is somewhat maddening. Uh, you quote uh, Michael yes. Steele as telling you uh, it, uh, about this strategy, the red map strategy and so forth, and the uh, gutting of the Voting Rights Act. He says it's a short-term strategy. The demographics mm-hmm. overwhelm the strategy, but they don't work against you if you make it harder for certain people to vote or register to vote. That's the dirty little secret they figured out. Let's move the polling places. Let's make people present documents. Well, I'm not sure who's, who, who they are in this case, as it seemed to be him and his party that he was uh, heading up. But now it seems that the party has no choice, that it is a Frankenstein's monster. I played Crocodile Rock there at the top of the uh, show because... Uh, uh, well, you, when you talk to uh, former Congressman Bob Inglis, he says it, you feed a crocodile, a crocodile's going to come eat you eventually. They put crocodiles in charge, and then the crocodiles devoured them. Uh, once again, he says they, even though it's sort of him. Yeah. So the big, yeah. <laughs> the big question is, uh, David, is this something that can be now overcome, even uh, with a, even if there's a huge landslide uh, of turnout at the polls, which is not guaranteed, but if there's a huge landslide, um, you know, in states both controlled by gerrymandered legislatures like Wisconsin, North Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania, Texas, and so forth, uh, as as well as a huge turnout in deep blue states. Is this something that can be overcome this year in this election that we are smack dab in the middle of? Can it be overcome this year? No, I don't think it can. I mean, I mean, listen, all of those things are important, and I hope all of those things happen. We And it absolutely has to start there. Uh, but this didn't begin with Donald Trump, and it won't end with his defeat. Um, you know, Donald Trump is not the governor of Texas who is l- limiting all of these counties to uh, one drop box. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is not in the Oklahoma legislature um, mandating a notary certification if you want to vote by absentee ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Donald Trump is not in the assembly in Wisconsin, which is run by minority rule under maps that were drawn in 2011. Uh, four full years before he comes down that escalator at Trump Tower in 2015. This has been baked into our politics for a long time. It's going to take a lot of time for us to get it out. This is a census year. This is a redistricting year. And so so state legislatures and the next decade of maps are on the line again. Mm-hmm. You've seen some advantages and some gains in independent commissions in five states in 2018. It's going to be a slightly fairer process than it was last time. But 
we've also got to have a lot of worry about what's happening in these courts. That decision from Pennsylvania, that 4-4 decision that uh, temporarily, at least, allows the counting of absentee ballots that arrive up to uh, three days after the election, as long as they're mm -hmm. postmarked on time in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. is really, really worrisome. Uh, because you had four justices, essentially, who were t to the right of John Roberts, mm -hmm. who sided with the liberals. Four justices to the right of the guy who wrote Shelby County. Yeah. And, and as soon as they are joined by a fifth, they will have five justices who are willing on electoral issues to override state constitutional clauses that allow for free and fair elections. Yep. And once that's the case, uh, oh boy, Katie, by the door. Yeah, uh, because that is about, and a lot of Democrats were like, uh, oh, yay, they get three extra days for ballots to come in oh, in Pennsylvania. Oh, 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 great no. decision. It's not a great decision because it's the U.S. Supreme Court saying we will decide if state constitutions can decide for themselves who has the right to vote. Uh, Dave Daly, uh, after 8,000 words in your story, uh, for now, uh, it sort of ends with the realization that the stolen Republican Supreme Court has, you know, agreed to take up another Voting Rights Act case that could gut the rest of the law. There's little to stop them with the soon-to-be 6-3 to three majority. Uh, and uh, the Trump and, and the GOP are now busy as, as you uh, reference, gaming the census itself for the next 10 years uh, with a Supreme Court that, uh, by and large, just gave them permission to do so. So, last question here, how do we ever climb out of this hole? And is the answer, or does the answer include, expanding the U.S. Supreme Court as I believe it does? If Democrats don't get serious about expanding the Supreme Court, but also perhaps adding circuits and additional additional uh, lower federal court judges, mm -hmm. uh, they will not be able to enact anything for a generation. So all of this begins with an expanded court, and Democrats are going to have to move very, very fast on that. There is a short window of time, and I hope that they are serious about making the plans that they need to be. This court is mm -hmm. taking aim at... Uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Yep. This court will soon take aim at independent redistricting commissions themselves. This court has clearly suggested that they do not care uh, about the free and fair elections clauses that are, are crucial to uh, state constitutions and provide a robust protection of voting rights in states that the federal constitution oftentimes simply does not allow. Uh, this is a court with a, a, a cramped and pinched view of voting rights that ought to terrify Americans as we head into a census and another a redistricting. Uh, there are more of us than them, but uh, there are more of them on the Supreme Court than us, and that's a big, big problem. And, uh, yeah, uh, expanding the court uh, is, is certainly where it starts, but that starts by what we do. Uh, at the polling place over the next two weeks, and uh, it, uh, a lot of it really is effect, uh, affected by how big, if there is to be a victory for yeah. Democrats, how big that victory is, how much of a landslide it will be uh, to send a message to both the courts uh, and Congress uh, that the American people are fed up with this crap. Dave Daly, you could you you, you should read. It's a must-read story, a cover story over at New Republic. Dot com inside the Republican plot for permanent minority rule, how the GOP keeps cheating its way into power and may get away with it again in 2020. I would add 
unless we stop them. David Daly, you can, you can find his work at also at fairvote.org, and you can find him on the Twitters at DaveDaly3. That's the number three. Mr. Daly, always great talking with you, my friend. Oh, and people should buy your book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Thanks for joining us, brother. Anytime, Brad. Thank you. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Um, boy, I, it, you know, like I say, it's maddening. We've been yes. reporting this for 15 <laughs> years. It is all one story. Right, it and is it all the same. And it continues to play out. We're still in the middle of it, and clawing our way out will not be easy. But boy, oh boy, it starts right now with voting in every goddamn state in this nation. Not just every state, but in every race in every state at all levels. Because remember, state legislatures matter. That's what he's talking about. That's where this awful business is being done. Does all of this give you the same kind of anxiety it gives me? <laughs> yes. All right. Well, in that case, let's take a quick break. I may have a bit of a solution for that. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, as I said, maybe I have some cure for anxiety. I don't know <laughs> okay. if this is going to cure all of it, but uh, the great Mel Brooks, who is 94? Yes. 94 years old. He came out today. Not a huge surprise, but uh, he came out in endorsing Joe Biden for president in a video that he created where on uh, from his kitchen table yeah. with his uh, son and his grandson standing outside from the behind him in the plate glass window. You can see them. I say it's not you know completely surprising that he's supporting Joe Biden. But in fact, this is, according to his son, uh, Max, this is apparently Mel Brooks's uh, first political video, as he <laughs> describes it. Uh, all right, here's, uh, here's Mel Brooks' endorsement of Joe Biden today. Hi, folks. I'm Mel Brooks, and behind me you see my son and my grandson, and they can't be with me. Why? Because of this coronavirus. And Donald Trump's not doing a damn thing about it. So many people have died. And when you're dead, you can't do much. So I'm voting for Joe Biden. I like Joe. Why do I like Joe? Because Joe likes facts. Because Joe likes science. Joe will keep us going. Take a tip from me. Vote for Joe. Okay, that's all I've got to say. Okay, you can leave. Thank you. Thank you. See you soon. i got to fill out my ballot. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, I love you too. That was good. 
<laughs> that was good. That said, that is not the reason why I wanted to, uh, why I thought it might help your anxiety, uh, because I think we all have high anxiety right now, uh, which the great Mel Brooks uh, sang about some years ago and will help play us out of today's broadcast. High anxiety Whenever you're near High anxiety It's you that I fear My heart's afraid to fly It's crashed before But then you take my hand My heart starts to soar Once more High anxiety It's always the same Anxiety It's you That I blame It's very clear to me I've got to give in you win. My thanks to my guest today, David Daly of Fairvote.org, to my producer, Desi Doyen, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can download our shows anytime at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I'm the Brad Blog. That's it. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. But then you take my hand. My heart starts to soar. Once more, heat change, high anxiety. It's always the same. I blame It's very clear to me I've got to give in I anxiety And remember folks be good to your parents they've been good to you You win